Thanks so much, Julie. Great to have that reading before us. If you've got a Bible, it would be excellent to open it up, uh, if you haven't already done so, uh, to John chapter 1. Fabulous, uh, fabulous reading. I'm going to ask that God would mercifully help us to address at least some of the amazing things that are in this reading. And uh, I'm going to pray that you would uh, join me uh, in that right now. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word preserved for us. We pray now that you would help us to turn our hearts and minds to you, that having praised you in song, we now may embrace your word in our hearts. Father, be at work by your Holy Spirit, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we're going to be looking at uh, John over the next term. So it's our term adventure. And I hope that you have a brilliant time because this book is really something special. Let me tell you a little bit about it as we get started, about why it might be a special book. A little bit of the background. First thing to say is, when is it written? It's probably, uh, almost certainly, the last gospel to be written. So we have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And you might wonder to yourself at times why it is that we have four. I'm going to make a little explanation of that in a second. But we believe it was relatively late, uh, somewhere in the, in the end of the first century, between 80 and 90 AD, that John wrote uh, this gospel. Uh, to give an idea of uh, how ancient the fragments are that we have, I think, Luke, you mentioned this, did you, the other day? Um, the, uh, the Rylands papyri. There's, there's a little fragment, this little piece here, a little piece of papyrus, and it's dated from about 100 AD. It's the oldest piece of the Old Testament that we have. And do you know where it's from? It's from the book of John. It's from John chapter 18. The front side uh, is the fir- uh, midway through the, uh, the book of cha- oh, sorry, chapter 18 of John. And on the back, it's the bit where Pilate says, what is truth? And I love as we start this exploration into John's gospel that you might be reminded that it's historical that it's ancient and that we might be people who are seeking after the truth that eluded Pilate. So it's ancient and it's probably written from the city of Ephesus. Uh, We find this out from a guy called Irenaeus who knew uh, another guy who knew John. And uh, so we're sort of a couple of degrees away from the actual first hand. But what we think happened is uh, the apostles were scattered John went to the city of Ephesus, and it's in Ephesus, as he was looking after the church there, that he wrote this account of Jesus' life. And that magnificent amphitheatre you can see there is in Ephesus. Who? We believe it's written to Jews and Gentiles. We'll see that as we go through. There's certainly things that echo for a Jewish uh, Jewish reader. So if you've heard uh, the Old Testament, you'll just see allusions to, uh, to the Old Testament all the way through the book of John. But again and again, it seems he's trying to pick up a new audience. And so I think it's fair to assume that the Gentiles are also anticipated as being part of the the audience. Why did he write it? He wrote it for life and and for faith. And we see that in the end of the book, in John chapter 20. So I'm going to spoil the ending, but it points us back to what John's interest is. It says in John chapter 20 and verses 30 to 31 this. It says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. You may find them in other Gospels if you choose to look them up. He doesn't say that, but we could. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what's his intent? That you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that you might find life in his name. Well, that's a bold, uh, a bold claim and a bold adventure that we're going to go on. Let me just quickly give you an overview. If you're in life groups, you'll be working your way through John uh, as well. And so just a quick overview of basically how John fits together. It tops and tails with a prologue and a thing called an epilogue. So uh, a word before and a word after. The word before puts uh, creation on view and the word at the end tells us what Jesus did after he was raised from the dead. In between, we have two main sections. Uh, The book of signs, which are miracles that Jesus did to reveal uh, who he was, signs that pointed to him. And the second section called the book of glory. Interestingly enough, if we were to write an account of your life, you might spend some time on your childhood, you might spend some time on your schooling, and then you might work out where the majority of your working life was perhaps, or the majority of your energy was spent, and then you might spend some time on the end. Have a look at how John breaks up his proportioning of Jesus' life. The book of signs basically goes for about three and a half years, so he doesn't tell us much about Jesus' birth at all. About three and a half years of his public ministry, and then the second half of the book, basically, oh, oh, that's unfortunate anyway. You'll see it build again. Basically, the second half of the book uh, will take... Uh, we're, we're assuming about it'll do a, about a week and so three and a half years first half of the book and then the second half the book of glory is basically the last week of Jesus' life is almost half of the entire account stunning isn't it what week of your life if your life was to be recorded would be worth half the book so here it is we see John's focus that he's bringing us to the crucifixion, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's where we're headed. All right, in order to get some perspective, sometimes we need to zoom out. Visual metaphor here. Here's a guy standing on the cliff. That looks pretty cool. Uh, If we zoom out, uh, it becomes completely heart-stopping how far up he is and, and what it looks like. Zooming out provides the context to understand what's going on. It's intriguing to me when we look for Jesus... Let's get, this is my overview of the Old and the New Testaments. So we've got um, pictures that represent from creation um, all the way through to going, coming into the Promised Land. That's the Old Testament. And then the New Testament, the birth, death and resurrection of Jesus, all the way through to what John says about Revelation and a new creation. When we want to look for Jesus, the three other Gospels will park their story of Jesus' life right here. They'll start when he's born. And that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Yes, good. Yes, it does make sense. Thanks, Russ. Uh, It does make sense. But John wants to zoom back. He says, I'll give you a context. You want to understand who Jesus is? Well, let's zoom out. I'm going to give you a context for Jesus that goes all the way back to the start. You're going to find out who the Son of God is by going all the way to the beginning of the universe. And so the scope couldn't be wider, could it? There's no, literally no, nowhere further back uh, you could go. In going back so far, we're going to turn our attention now to John chapter 1. In going back so far, John starts by talking about ultimate reality. The biggest issues that we have in life are addressed in his opening. 
And so if you join with me, have a look at verses 1 to 5 here. He says, In the beginning was the word. It, just incidentally, did anyone hear in the beginning any time this morning so far? Did you hear it in that beautiful, lyrical account of creation from Genesis chapter 1? The most famous words in the Bible are, in the beginning. And here it is, John chooses to open his account of Jesus' life with these words, in the beginning. It's no accident. He's deliberately alluding to the, uh, the history that we have in Genesis. So, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's stunning. We don't start with a dusty stable. We don't start with an angelic vision. We start... Literally, in the darkness, with creation bursting forth. And you heard that account from Genesis chapter 1. How was it that creation came into being? What did God do to bring it into being? He spoke. And so let's think about what this account tells us. There are all sorts of ultimate questions. One of the ultimate questions you can have is, what's the divine light? If there's, if there's anything spiritual in the universe, what is the universe, the, the, the power behind the universe like? For, for the Greeks and the Romans, they had a pantheon of gods. So their picture was us up in the sky, squabbling, fighting, marrying, having wars, having adventures... Their idea was a messy human family in the sky. That that was their account. That is not the account that the Christians proclaimed. That is something entirely different. The account from John 1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's quite extraordinary that John chooses to use this word, the Word. If you're a Greek philosopher, it might have meant the reason behind the universe. Here, John picks up something that's actually profoundly Jewish. How does creation happen? It happens when God speaks. So who should be with the Father in creation other than the Word? What is divinity like? Well, it says here there was God and his Word. It doesn't say that he has any form. It doesn't tell us what his eye colour like or, or whether, he has a, uh, whether he wants to get married. Or, it doesn't tell us any of those things. It's not trying to put a human picture into space. This is revelation. This is God telling us about himself. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The first thing we find is the divine is the Word. The next question that we'd ask, and Luke will answer this much better than me, but I'll do a little bit of theology. When uh, he'll, he'll talk about mechanics. Where, how did we come to be? That, that's, we want to answer the question, how did we come to be? And so if you're uh, an Indigenous Australian, you have a dream time account, right? And maybe uh, the, the great serpent has, has carved out uh, valleys and hills and gorges. Maybe uh, a frog has 
brought forth water? That, that's your account. You have an account of natural things that exist creating other things. Maybe that's the account. Or, or maybe you have an account of giant beasts like the Babylonians did. Gr- giant beasts. Hey, Zach. How you doing, mate? And Dad's at the back. You have a, the, the Babylonians had an account of giant beasts fighting each other and this was, the world was the outcome of their fight. That, that is not the picture that we have here. In, in, in John 1, 2-3, we see this. He was with God in the beginning... Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. What we learn here is something profoundly important. It was God's sovereign act that created the universe. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a fight. It took no effort at all. It was simply speech creation. And it's extraordinary. It is absolutely extraordinary. What, how did we come to be? We are spoken into being. Everything we know is spoken into being. By the creator. So how do we come to it? We were created. What about uh, the things in life like uh, relationships? Why is it that as a human person I'm so broken hearted when my relationships go astray? Why am I so overjoyed when I'm in love? Do you remember that? Today? <laughs> I, I love some looks of, oh, I'm not really sure if I know. <laughs> Do you know that, that absolutely, that, that exhilarating, transcendent feeling? Do you know what it is to have someone who cares for you hug you? To hear a word of affirmation. That relationship, what, does it matter? Do you know, interestingly, if, if we really go down the atheist line, there is no God, then all we are is atoms and matter and it's just some chemical transaction happening in your brain and it's worthless and it's meaningless. Here's what this story says about relationship. It says that relationship is eternal, that it is at the core of the universe, relationships matter. And that's why it matters to us. It's why we live and breathe relationships, because God himself was eternally relating father and son from before the creation of the universe. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. Relationship is bound up in the heart of God. And so it's no surprise at all that those of us who are made in his image echo, long for, right relationship. What's the origin of life? I I love watching scientists do all this stuff. It's it's pretty interesting. It's kind of cool. But here's the thing that drives me crazy. I was reading Dawkins. He's a biologist. He actually had the theory in, in The God Delusion that maybe life was seeded here from an asteroid that crashed on Earth. Now, there's a thing called infinite re- re- regress, where you go, okay, so life came to Earth from an asteroid. Well done. That's how life came to be. But the question you must logically ask next is what? Where did that come from? Do you see how you haven't answered the question at all if you do that? And so here's the thing. We would ask, where did life come from? And the answer is, amazingly enough, here. Have a look at John 4. In him, in the word, was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. What is the origin of life? The life is from God's son, the word. 
And when we get to Easter, incidentally, isn't that going to be extraordinary? When we get to Easter and we talk, as we just sang in this incredible song in Jerusalem, when we talk about the death of God's Son, who is the origin of life, isn't it extraordinary? Where does life come from? It comes from the Word. What about good versus evil? So maybe there is this titanic struggle between a good beast and an evil beast. Have a look, even in these opening words, it's totally sorted out. Have a look at verses 4 to 5. It says this, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Will evil triumph? The darkness has not overcome it. When had it not overcome it? When was John writing? Do you remember? So let's say between 80 or 90 AD. Do you know what? The darkness had not overcome it then. Do you know what? God's word is always true. So I'm reading this at um, sometime around 11 o'clock in 2017. And this word here is still true. The darkness has not overcome it. Will this word ever pass away? No, it will not. The darkness has not overcome it. We can know for sure that good will always triumph over evil because it's here. The light will not be overcome by darkness. So these ultimate questions, even before we've got anywhere in here, are actually answered in these first five verses of John's account of Jesus' life. So we're up there, we're in the heavens, we're making the heavens and the earth, and then, have a look with me, uh, let's meet a guy called John. Um, uh, I, always, I love this bit of the wedding. Uh, you have all these great things, they plan uh, the, the, the walk-in, well, there's actually the, the nervous wait for the guys at the front first, that's the nervous wait. Girls obviously do their hair, at uh, least some do. Um, we, we then um, we sing some songs, uh, we kind of do rings and things, and then there's this really awkward, weird bit where everyone goes... Okay, do something out there. Well, we come over here and we'll sit down and sign a book. Have you seen this? I always think it's the most awkward bit of the whole, the whole thing. Well, why do we do that? Who's this guy? You can see who the bride and groom are up there, can't you? So who's the other bloke? The, the guy in the blue tie, I'm taking it because of his little microphone, is the minister, so that's good. So who's the guy in matching clothes like the groom? Who's that? Sorry? The best man. What's his job? His job is to make a bad speech, yeah? To make sure that the groom doesn't have any chewing gum in his mouth anymore and to kind of get him there on time. Hold the rings, maybe. So what's he doing here? Sorry? Witnessing. What's he witnessing? A signature that says, I'm here and I just got married. But it's a job. The job is actually, we give you a suit, we pay for your food, and all you have to do is say, I saw you sign your name. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Well, guess what? That's exactly what John is about to talk about. Have a look with me at verses 6 to 8. There was a man sent from God, his name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. So what was, Job's, what was John's job to do? See that bloke over there? He's pretty good. I'm putting my signature next to his. He's the man. Okay? He's the man. That's his job. Incidentally, uh, this shouldn't trouble anyone here, but there's a huge debate over who wrote the Gospel of John. You'll be surprised to know. 
I think absolutely from my reading, the most convincing case that John the Apostle, called in the Gospel, the beloved disciple, is John because he refers to John the Baptist as John. You see, because if he put his own name in here, which is if, if, if it wasn't him, if it wasn't John the Apostle who wrote it, there would be the name John in here amongst the apostles. There's no John amongst the apostles in John's gospel, only the disciple who Jesus loved. So when he writes about a guy called John, who is clearly John the Baptist, it must be that he's not talking about himself, because otherwise he'd have to say, John, who's not me, also known as the Baptist. Can you see this? Anyway, this is a side point, but I want you to know, I think it's an absolute slam dunk that the disciple John wrote the gospel. There we go. That's by the by. Uh, make of that what you want. Note John. Very good. Uh, now, I want you to see what happens. So he says he came to testify concerning the light. And we're going to meet that light right here. Have a look at, uh, at verses 9 to 11. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. See, my picture is the arrival lounge at an airport, right? And the king of Israel has come. So Jesus is the word, the son of God. He's arrived in Israel, and it's like he's just touched down at the airport, and he's at the uh, arrivals desk, and no one is there. It's crickets. It's totally empty. It says he came to his own. He came to the Jewish people, but his own did not receive him. He was unwelcome by his own people. That's quite remarkable. They didn't put him on their shoulders in the end and have a revolution to overthrow the occupying Romans. They didn't do that. In fact, they called for his crucifixion. He came to that which was his own, his own people, Israel, and his own did not receive him. He was unwelcome by them. But something extraordinary happened. Unwelcome by them, but he offered a welcome that was previously open only to a few. Uh, this is a picture of the Titanic. And uh, one of the things that we know about, uh, about the Titanic was uh, the more money you pay, the closer to the waterline you were. Is that right? No. The more... No, it hasn't changed. Is that right, Russ? So when you go on a cruise, the more money you pay, the... High you are. In fact, it's actually a status symbol how far up the boat you are. Okay? And Roman society was, was like that. Not, not that they had big cruise liners, but there were people who were high officials, senators and those sorts of things. They had slaves. The slaves had underlings who would serve under them. There were people who were the least of society and then this whole strata of class. And if you wanted to get ahead, you would have to deal with, wrestle with this class structure oppressing you and keeping you down. If you're a slave, you were an appliance in the home. You're of little value. There's something extraordinary in these verses here that cuts through a class society. Have a look at verses 12 to 13. Yet to all who did receive him, Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? What does it say there? Children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. What's on offer here? Something extraordinary. For the slave to the senator, 
Access to the right to become children of God is offered if you believe in the Son. It's extraordinary. It destroys class. It says in this church this morning, wealthy, poor, living close to Oran Park, far away, we have level ground if we will receive the Son. Whatever Australia aspires to be as an egalitarian society, which I think increasingly we're not, the church must be because of the way we are invited to become children of God. To all who would believe, he says. What a wonderful offer. And then he comes back to the words arrival, and I absolutely love this in, in verse 14. Uh, arguably, you know, this, this revelation that this happened is the single most important thing that has happened in the history of the universe. This thing, verse 14, the word became flesh... And made his dwelling amongst us. We've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. See, what, what, what I think it looks like is, is this. It's camping. The, the son of God took on flesh and took up a dwelling amongst the people. And it will be entirely wrong if I walk down here and go like this. They took up a dwelling amongst the people. But otherwise I'm going back to being God and not Thomas. I wouldn't do that. became flesh. He was incarnate, is the wonderful word for today. He was incarnate. He took on flesh and dwelt amongst us. An extraordinary picture. And it says we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. We have got a glimpse of it, and we're going to see that over these, uh, these weeks that come. There's a funny thing going around uh, in sport at the moment. Uh, people get called goat. Does anyone know what that is? Greatest of all time. Okay, a few of you know this. So if you're the goat, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. Who knew? So you're a goat, okay? The greatest of all time is a goat. I want you to see what John the Baptist has to say about a goat. Have a look at verse 15. John testified concerning him. This is Jesus. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Does that fry your brain? The one who comes after me, Jesus was born after John the Baptist, the one who comes after me is more important than me because he was before me. How does that work? Here's the thing. The Son of God, the Word, had an existence before he was a babe in Bethlehem. Now that'll fry your brain, won't it? 
The one who is with the Father at the creation, the one through whom he spoke creation into being, the Son was with the Father before he was born. So Mary wasn't the first person to meet Jesus. Do you see this? Before he had flesh, the Son existed with the Father, eternally relating. The greatest of all time, John has no problem saying that. Oh, this bloke who's over here, you know what? (laughs) He surpassed me because he was before me. Does that make sense? He existed before me. And so John says, he's the goat. What does the word bring when he comes? I want to finish, almost finish, with this picture here. I want you to imagine that relating to God, getting on right terms with God, is like climbing Mount Everest. Okay? So let's imagine this is God doesn't climb Mount Everest. Everyone feel that? Imagine God is at the top of Mount Everest, and it's your job to meet with him. How many people reckon they're going to make it? Anyone reckon they'll have a crack? First of all, can I encourage you guys to swim into the You reckon you're going to fly there? Here's the thing. I, 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 I Googled this. What do you need to take to climb Mount Everest? A lot of stuff. So the first thing is you've got to get to Mount Everest and then you've got to get up. But to get up, you need this amount of stuff. Does anyone here reckon they're going to carry that? I reckon this is exactly what it feels like. God says, come and meet with me. And we go, oh, I've got this sin. I'm utterly shot through with sin. I'm out of relationship with you, God. In my heart, my first thought is, choose me before you. I'm laying down by my guilt. How could I ever ascend to you? And I think that's the picture from the Old Testament. God lays out clearly, here's what you would need. And everyone who's ever tried looks at it and goes, it's too much, Lord. And then the sun comes, and I think this is, this is it. Do, do you know who these guys are? When you, go to, when you get up, when you get up to, to, to Mount Everest, do you know how mortals like you and I climb up Mount Everest? It isn't by carrying all that stuff. Do you know who carries it? Sherpas. We haul our carcasses up, and these extraordinary Nepalese people carry all the rest. And we claim the glory with a photo on top of Mount Everest. It is extraordinary. The only way a sense of Mount Everest are possible is by these guys who put all the load on their back and carry it for you. This is the sun. This is the sun. And so what I want to say to you, what, what these verses, John 17, uh, 1.17 says this. It says this, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Here's what I think it means. Moses and the law laid out what was required. This extraordinary, untenable burden of holiness that we could never achieve. It was laid out there. And then God sent his son Jesus, who brought us grace and truth. Grace and truth. And makes the impossible possible. It says in verse 16, Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. It was gracious of God to tell us what his holy standard was. But something more has happened. In the Son, God has revealed grace in place of grace. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Praise God, eh? It's possible because someone else will carry the untenable load for me. 
And it's even better than that. I reckon this Sherpa throws us on his shoulders <laughs> and carries us up the mountain as well. Grace upon grace is what we see in the sun. Praise God. So how could we meet this sun? How, how would we get to know the sun? It says in verse 18, no one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Do you want to meet God? Do you want to know what the Heavenly Father is right? Sit down and have an interview with the Son. Meet the Son. Our God is knowable because he has chosen to make himself known through his Son. So what's before us? Something extraordinary over this term. We will hear the Son speak of the Father. We will see afresh who it is our God is. I can't wait. The offer this term is life in his name. And I want to say to you, if today you've never, never said yes to that son, if you want to find out who that son is, I'm running a course called Jesus for the Curious. It's going to go through the week on a Tuesday night. I'm going to put the details of it in the newsletter. I have a flyer for you. But you might want to put on your Care and Connect card. You might want to say, hey, I'd love to do Jesus for the Curious. It's a place to bring your questions. It's a, it's a place to think some more about who Jesus is. And we will read and we'll interact. This is pretty much one way, isn't it? Even when I poke you with a stick, you say a little bit. But in, in Jesus for the Curious, you get to speak. And we get to wrestle with who he is. And I would love to invite you, join me for Jesus for the Curious, to explore who Jesus is. If you're someone who already knows the Son... Can I encourage you, get into our reading plan. We're going to read through one chapter of John each day for the next 21 days, three weeks. And I would love for you to do that with me. Every day, meeting Jesus in the Word. Don't miss the opportunity. Dive in and meet the Son. Because there is an offer, an extraordinary offer of life in His name. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the extraordinary mercy shown to us that when we were overwhelmed with your requirement, you sent your Son in flesh to be amongst us. We thank you, Father, that he reveals you to us. We pray that we get to know you, maybe for the first time, that those of us who know you and love you would fall in love with you all over again, that we would be surprised at who we find you to be yet again. Father, transform our hearts. Refresh me in who you are. Help me to walk closely with you. Help us to walk with you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.